Mark chapter 7. Jesus teaches about inner purity. One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived in Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the, the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by the ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as a ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, Why don't you disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, You you hypocrites, Isaiah, was right when he (coughs) verifies about you, for he wrote, These people honor me in their lips. By their hearts are far from me. Their worship is fierce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, Your skillful sidestep God's law in order to hold to your own traditions. For instance, Moses gave you the law from God. Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of your father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is as all rightful people would say their parents, Sorry, I can help you, for I have vowed to give God what I have given to you. In this, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you conceal the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is the only one example among many others. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All you listen, he said, and all you try to understand. It's not what goes into your body and defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into the house to get away from the crowd. And his disciples asked him, what he meant by a parable either, what about the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't get into your heart, but only passes through your stomach and then goes to the sewer. By saying this, he declared, declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eye. And then he added, It is what comes from inside that defiles you. For for from within our person's heart comes evil. Thoughts, sexual immortality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy and slander, pride and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are all what defile you. Well, my senior year, my very last semester of university, I got an email from my, my professor and from my advisor. We were about two, month, two weeks into, into school, and it says, Luke, I need to meet with you in my office as soon as possible. 
And like my heart sank in that moment because this guy, my advisor, was also in charge of the disciplinarian, or discipline, uh, the whatever that word I'm trying to find right now, the, the discipline of the school. And I just start thinking to myself, it's like, okay, what have I done that he would know about? Like, what has happened that, and I was just like, okay, like, I knew this wasn't a message for me to come in and him to tell me how great of a student I was and how glad the school was to have me, because none of that was true. And so I knew that wasn't the case, and I was just like wondering, what was it going to be? And so I finished my class, I walk into Dr. Green's office, and he's, he tells me, Luke, have a seat. And I'm like, uh-oh. This is, this is getting bad. I think he was just preparing me for what was about to come. And he was like, somehow we have miscalculated. I'm like, okay, I didn't do anything. This is good. Um, we have miscalculated your schedule. And so what we had done over the last like, year, we had figured out how to cram my last two years of college into one year. So we, I was trying to graduate my four-year degree in three years. And so we were cramming all these classes in, and I was got everything worked out. And somehow, some way, I was going to do it. And I got my schedule, and we started. And he was like, we have overlooked the class. And I was like, oh, no. And it was like the worst class that it could possibly be. It was American literature. Like that was the class that I had to take. And he was like, you have to change your schedule. You have to change things around. We have to cram this class in here if you are going to take, if you're going to graduate in May. And so like because of the way that this class came about, it wasn't actually a bad class, but just the way that it came about forced on me in this last day that I could add a class was not a great start. But in this class, we, we studied like some, some different literature. We studied like Robert Frost. We studied uh, Edgar Allan Poe. We studied Mark Twain. And that's literally all that I can remember. That's how good, good I did in this class. Um, <laughs> but like that's, that's what we studied. And I just remember, like, after each class, they would give us this, this passage, a segment to read of this certain person, and they would tell you, you need to write a, an analysis on this writing. And, and I would go, and one of the things you always had to answer in the analysis was, what is the symbolism that you saw in this writing? What were some of the, the metaphors? What were some of the interpretations that you have of this writing? And so I would read, and I would try to figure some of these things out, and, and I would write these answers of what I thought the metaphors were and what they were supposed to mean, and I'd turn my paper in, and my teacher would always have this mark. It's like, that, no, that's not what it meant. And I would be like, well, how am I supposed to know what the mountains mean? How am I supposed to know what the grass means? Like, I don't know. Like, and I would, she would tell me, well, this is what it means. Like, how am I supposed to know that? And I would even, I'd argue with her and I'd tell her, well, well, I like my interpretation better. I like what my point better. It makes the story a little bit better. But the reality was it didn't really matter what I liked better. It didn't really matter what interpretation I wanted because I wasn't the author, right? And so the author trumped what I wanted. And so like, I just, I didn't like the class because I, I thought things should go a little bit differently. I thought things should be a little bit different than they actually were. I wanted things to, to look a certain way. I viewed things a certain way, than the different way than the author did. And in our text today, that's kind of what we see with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they look at some things a little bit differently. They see some things that they want to hold tightly to, that they want to say, hey, this is what is most important. This is what this should mean. This is what you should do. And Jesus comes along and is like, no. He corrects some of their thinking. He helps them to see things differently. He helps them to understand. And so as you read this story in Mark 7, like as you look around the surrounding stories, this is actually a really odd placement for this story. Because as we go through the story, like there is nothing really leading up to this. It literally starts one day, once upon a time. Like it's just this random story that pops up. And at the end of the story, guess what? 
It just stops. Like there's no other continuing thought here. It's just a different story from a different moment that begins to happen. There's no further follow-up teaching. Like this is just kind of an odd placement, this random story that sits in here. And I think actually in a lot of ways it's really good one for us to end on because it's not a continuation of something else that's going on. It's just a really significant teaching almost right in the dab of the middle of Mark's gospel. And so if we were going we to summarize this passage together, if we were going to wrap our heads around what this looks like, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us, I think it would be something like this. Is Jesus is most concerned about your heart, not just your outward actions. I think that's what we're seeing here. What Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees is, I care more about your heart, not just your, your outward actions. So Jesus wants our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions, our minds, everything that we do, he wants it all to be wants to be aligned. There should be cohesion among all of these things. And I think what's significant for us to remember too is, is the private you and the public you should be the same person. And so we can see, what, what do you like in private? When no one is watching, what, what are you doing? What, what do you like? And it begins to see, is there some actual cohesion between what I say I believe and what I do? And if our hearts are truly transformed, it will always come out in the things that we do. And so we begin to see this playing out. And the question that this passage begs us to ask is this, is what are you, what do you care most about? What are you focusing on? What grabs your attention? What is the thing that you always pay attention to? For the Pharisees, it's these man-made rules that they have created. These are the things they're paying attention to. These are the things they're focused on. But what about you? What is it that you pay most attention to? What is it that you are focused on? So the reality is we all, we all worship something. The question is what? What is it going to be? And so we see Jesus, he breaks down this story. This passage really breaks down in two ways. First is, is the outward, outward workings and then the inward workings. And we see this to start with in the first part. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. It says this, it says, One day some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. Now, notice that these Pharisees are coming from Jerusalem. This is important for us. And because one of the things that Mark does in his gospel is he's kind of like leading us to, to see what the, what's, how the story is going to end. Because you guys remember what happens to Jesus in Jerusalem? It doesn't go well. Like Jesus dies. And who are the people who put Jesus to death? It's the religious leaders. It's the Pharisees. Perhaps even some in this very moment are the people who say Jesus, condemn Jesus to death. And so Mark is, is giving us a glimpse into the end of the story to see what's going to happen in Jerusalem. We've seen this a couple of different times already when Jesus runs into these Pharisees from Jerusalem. Like, it doesn't go, it doesn't go well. And we see how the story is going to end. So Mark is go ahead and letting us know this, this, this idea. He's showing us what, how the story is going to finish. But there's this little line in verse 2 that I think is so profound. So look at, look at verse 2 again. It says, They noticed some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish rituals of hand-washing before eating. Catch that phrase. They noticed. They noticed. Of course they did. 
right? Because this is what the Pharisees did. Like they noticed things that probably anyone else would have just overlooked. They noticed the things that actually weren't terribly important. The Pharisees had this problem where they would take a good thing and they would just make it an ultimate thing. And here's the thing about these commands. We'll get into this in a minute. They started out from a really good place. But the Pharisees, they go and they hold this over people and they, they make it as this, uh, this, this heavy burden and this heavy weight to be over them. And, and they noticed that they weren't washing hands. You guys catch that? Like, it's hand washing that gets them upset. It isn't something like, this is pre-COVID, guys. Like, this is even like, these people aren't even walking out of the toilet and not washing their hands. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. This is ceremonial, ritual hand washing that sets them off. This is the thing that gets them upset. And it just begs the question, what is it for you? Like, what is the thing that you notice? What is the thing that gets you upset? What is the thing that you are fixated on? Are you focused on the kingdom of Jesus or are you distracted by something else? Are you focused on the kingdom of Jesus or are you distracted by something else? Because here's the thing. I think we would all testify to this. It is easy to be distracted it's easy to be pulled off, pulled off just a little bit. And even it's not always bad things. Like sometimes it's good things that can begin to move us away. And it's easy to be distracted. And this is my shameless plug for, for community, for showing up on Sundays. Because we need people to help us along the way. We need people to help us from getting distracted. We need to show up on community group because we need to be in a group of people who are living the same way we are to help us from getting distracted. We need accountability. We need people who come alongside us who know what's going on in our lives, who can call us out, who can help us from keep getting distracted because it's easy to do. It's easy to get distracted. I think all of us are spiritually ADD at times where we just like, oh, shiny, and start chasing after that. And the reality is like, it's easy. Easy to get distracted. It's easy to get off guard or get off track. And these guys, they're they're upset about hand washing. Really? Three. Look at three through five. So it says the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until it has immersed their hands in water. But this is one of the many traditions they have clung to, such as ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law asked him, Why do your disciples follow why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony. So in writing, one of the ways to communicate significance is through the use of repetition. It is impossible for us to miss the repetition in this passage. You guys, you catch it? Their ancient traditions. Their, one of their many traditions they have clung to, age-old tradition, your own traditions, your own tradition, your own tradition. If my counting is correct, six different times in 13 verses, we're talking about their traditions, your tradition, these, these traditions, these cr- things that they have, they have created. The hand-washing is, is a tradition they've made because if you read through the Old Testament law, nowhere does God command, hey, wash your hands. Before, before meals. I think we'd all agree it's a good practice, but it's not an Old Testament command to perform, to do these things. So they have created this command and they have said, like, we have to do this. And they've elevated it to the status of a God-given command. 
And here's the thing. If, if we ever take man-made commands or man-made rules and elevate them to the status of God-made, things end in chaos. Things end in disaster. Things do not go well. And that's what's happening here. They're saying, like, these are our traditions, and they acknowledge it. They acknowledge that these are their traditions. But they're saying that these are just as important. And we see in verse 5, like, they're not accusing the disciples of breaking the Old Testament law. They're not doing that like they've done before. They're not accusing them of that. The, the accusation is of breaking their own age-old tradition. So it's, it's time for, for me to tell you guys about Ignaz uh, Semmelweis. Semmelweis. So it's Ignaz Semmelweis. I probably butchered his name. Anybody know who I'm talking about? I know you're on the edge of your seats wondering for me to tell you all about this guy, right? So Ignaz Schimmelweis was a doctor in the 1840s. If you have ever had a surgery, raise your hand. Anybody ever had a surgery, operation, procedure going on? All right, if you have ever had one of those where the instruments were cleaned or the hands were washed of the doctors, you have this guy to thank. Because in 1840, that wasn't a thing that they did. And so in 1840, this guy was, this doctor was in charge of two maternity clinics. One clinic was run by doctors. The other clinic was run by midwives. And they were right next to each other. And what they found out as he starts to be in charge of these clinics is the clinic that was run by doctors had a death rate five times more of bed fever than the one run by midwives. And obviously this wasn't acceptable. And so he started to study, started doing some research to see what they were doing differently. And the only thing that he found is that the doctors, when a patient would die, they would do an autopsy on the patient and then immediately go to deliver a baby without washing their hands or washing their tools. Logic tells us that's not a good idea. But it was a few years before germs were discovered, so they didn't have a clue. And so he was like, I don't know. This is the only difference that I see. And so he told them, he told the doctors, what we're going to do is after every, every patient, we're going to wash our hands. We're going to sterilize our, our equipment and our tools that we use, and we're going to use chlorine. And he didn't know that it was actually a disinfectant. He just thought it would get rid of the smell of the corpses in the, in the room. He actually thought that the smell might have been what was killing people. Like, once again, it's the, 16, or the 1840s, so we'll, we're going to give him a break. But everything changed simply by washing the tools and washing their hands. But here's the thing. For, this isn't the story this isn't about hygiene. Because I think every single one of us is like, it's a good idea. You should wash your hands. You should probably wash the things you cook with. That's probably a good idea. We would all agree on that. But we've got to make sure that we catch this. This is not about hygiene. This is about the ceremonial ritual. This is about this just practice of, of, of being spiritual. That's what's important for us to see here. And the thing is, like, this tradition, it started with really good intentions. When the elders brought this tradition about, it was something that was, that was because they did not want things to be common before God. They believed God to be this God who is worthy of great worship, and, and they didn't want things to be defiled before him. And that's, that's great. It's a good intention. But they took this law, they took this rule, and they made it into something so much more, into something greater, as the Pharisees often did. They moved this from some this, this is ritual for like this, this certain beautiful um, ceremonies to, to every single meal that they would do. They took this, took this law and they forced it onto people and held them captive by it. Look at verse 4 again. It says that similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they have immersed their hands in water. 
But this is one of their many traditions they have clung to, such as ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Look how much they've lost their focus. They wash their hands. They wash the food. They wash the, the utensils that they use to cook it. Once again, not for hygiene reasons, but for ceremonial purity reasons. So what would have happened is if I bumped into someone at the market, they may be unclean, thus making me unclean. So I'm going to go and I'm going to grab all my food. I'm going to take all of my stuff and I'm going to jump in the water and I'm going to ceremonially clean myself. And this is what they've done. They've, they've started doing this and they, they start believing, oh, okay, they're, they're superior. There's this holiness air about them. And they're saying, well, we have made this, own, we have made this rule. And I know like, it's not in the Bible. I know it's not in the Old Testament, but, but we're going to follow this rule anyway. And you probably should too. And if you don't, we're going to get really upset. And this is what they've, this is what they've done. And so the, the Pharisees would rather people follow their man-made traditions and their man-made rules than follow Jesus. Now, they probably wouldn't say that. But this is the accusation that Jesus levies on them. This is, the, this is what Jesus accuses them of. Jesus begins to speak in verse 6. He says this. He says, You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about, prophesied about you, for he wrote, For these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own your own tradition. So in verse 5, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our, our, the handed down old time, old age tradition? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't even answer the question. It's a stupid question anyway. But Jesus doesn't answer it. No, he just goes straight to the heart of the, the issue. He goes and he calls the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. I think it's important for us to make sure that we, we know what that word means. So this word was actually used uh, to start with in the theater world. So a hypocrite would have been someone who put on a different mask to play a different role. And so they would go and they'd play one role and they'd take off the mask and they'd play another role. That would make them a hypocrite. And so Jesus, he uses this word, he picks up on it to describe someone and who, who says one thing, but their heart is, is a completely different way. And so Jesus describes hypocrisy as the act of acting. And what we find fascinating is you read through the gospel, Jesus calls the, the Pharisees and he calls people hypocrite quite a lot. This is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus refers to people as hypocrite. And that's important. And so it's, it, he pulls it out here. A few years ago, I was, I was FaceTiming with my mom. And, and as, I, as I was, my nephew Liam was at my parents' house. And he was about four or five at the time. And, and while we were FaceTiming, Liam had put on a Hulk mask and Hulk hands. And he runs to the camera and he does like, I'm Hulk or whatever. And I'm just like, hey, Hulk, how's it going? And in that instant, I don't know what snapped within him. I don't know if it was like an identity crisis or something, but he runs out of the camera. He takes the mask off and he runs back to the camera. He's like, Uncle Luke, it's me, Liam. It was like, Yes, clearly I knew it was Liam, but he was really upset about this because he thought, I actually believe that he was Hulk, the Hulk. And in a lot of ways, this is what Jesus is doing for the Pharisees. He is unmasking them. He's removing the mask. He's taking away the, the game that they're playing and just said, hey, I want you to see clearly who you actually are. I want you to see the reality of what's actually going on with these traditions. I want you to see really what is happening here. Take off the mask, quit playing a game, and let's just take a real look at what happens. 
And the way Jesus confronts them is by quoting Isaiah 29, where he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And so if we flip to Isaiah 29, where this comes from, this is actually a quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13. But I think it's important for us to see, what is the context of Isaiah 29? What is going on in this passage that Jesus is getting ready to quote to these disciples? Well, I think it's going to give us a good idea. So Isaiah 29, verses 1 and 2, kind of sets up what's happening here. It says, What sorrow awaits Ariel, the city of David? Year after year you celebrate your feast. Yet I will bring disaster upon you, and there will be, there will be much weeping and sorrow. For Jerusalem will become what her name Ariel means, an altar covered in blood. You guys catch that phrase in verse 1? Year after year, you celebrate your feast. But you read through the history of Israel, their hearts aren't in it. Like, like they, this is the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a really significant place in, in the Old Testament history. So it's, it's, it's become the capital for Israel. It's the epicenter of worship. And so it's where, it's where Solomon has built the temple, is in Jerusalem. It's where people who have, who have wandered away from Jerusalem, who have walked away, where Israelites who have left the, the confines of Jerusalem, it's where they come back every single year to celebrate the, 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 the Passover or to celebrate the, the different ceremonies that God lays out for them in the Old Testament. They make their way back to Jerusalem to worship God. And, and so they go there, and this is what Jerusalem is. They're year after year, they're offering these sacrifices. They're going through the motions. They're going through the rituals, but their hearts aren't in it. They're not truly committed to God. They're not truly committed to a relationship with Him. They're not really reading, not really living for Him. In fact, the rest of Isaiah 29 is going to be, a, hey, guess what? You're about to be wiped out. You're about to be destroyed because of your rebellion, because of your sinfulness. You are going to be attacked, but I'm going to rescue you because that's what I do. And so it's this warning. And so they, Jerusalem has become a city of God by name only. It has become a place where they're more focused on man-made tradition than actually truly worshiping God. And this is what they say of, this is what Jesus says of the Pharisees. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. When we live that way, when we honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, what we do in our worship, it is nothing more than a game. It's a game of charades, a game of dress up, just, just acting some things out. And this is the last thing that Jesus wants. Because when we play games like this in church, the church turns from a place that people run to to a place that people run from. And so Jesus calls them out as like, quit playing games, quit just acting, quit playing these games of charades and dress up, and let's actually deal with the heart issue. Let's get here and see what is happening. Jesus continues, verses 9 through 13, back to, back to Mark. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. For anyone who speaks disrespectfully of, her, of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it will be all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. 
And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is one of the many examples. This is one example among many others. When I first read this text a few weeks ago, there was one statement that just jumped out at me and just grabbed me and that I was wrestling with, and it's it's in verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. Let's, let's, Let's look at this. You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own traditions. You skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own traditions. Is that anything you've ever done? You ever done that? I think we're really good at that at times. Like we can look at our culture, right? We can look at our culture and, and kind of look at, let, let's pick on culture for a minute, okay? Other people, let's look at them, okay? So we'll see like, okay, let's well, like this idea of sexual purity, okay? Like, okay, so I can't have as many sexual partners as I want. I have to wait until I'm married. I have to be pure. Like, okay, did the Bible really mean that? Did God really say and that's the first lie that mankind is given, that God really say. And so we, we sidestep it. It's like, okay, I don't actually think God, God meant that. Or, or maybe it's this idea of stewardship. It's maybe like everything that we have is God's, and we are held accountable for everything that we use and everything that we have. And we have to, God entrust us for that, with that. And maybe we sidestep that. I'm like, okay, well, I'll give you 10%, God. I'll give you 10% of my money, 10% of my time, 10% of my herbs or whatever it is like and we say okay but the but the rest that's that's all mine you can't tell me what to do with my other 90 percent god you can't tell me what to do with my other 90 percent of my time and and we sidestep god's command which we see throughout scripture this idea of of stewardship throughout the pages of scripture that god is the giver of everything it all belongs to him so we we skillfully sidestep it and and we do what we want Or, or maybe it's maybe it's homosexuality this is one in our culture right like, okay, well, God may have said that then, but that's so outdated. Like, God, it, it, we're, we're more evolved now. We're more sophisticated now. And, and so surely God didn't mean that. And, and so we begin to sidestep these commands. We begin to sidestep these things in order to hold on to what our culture says is true, to be able to, be able to hold on to what our world says is right. And it's really easy to pick on culture, right? Because our culture is a mess. Let's pick on ourselves for just a second. Because I think if you're anything like me, you're really good at this as well. Probably better at it than you want to admit. I am a really good justifier. I can justify things and get, I can, I'm a really good sidestepper and I know this to be true about me. And so this is one of the things that it grips me with. It's like if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, we can't sidestep his commands. I told you guys a story about the lady at Aldi a few months ago. I sidestepped what God was, felt like God was calling me to do for weeks. And I justified it. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to sidestep this and not do it. And the reality is, like, they have become excellent at sidestepping God's law. They've become excellent at doing this. And the Pharisees, like, they prided themselves on following God's laws. Not only God's laws, but the 600 other laws that they made surrounding God's laws. And they prided themselves on it. They're, they're religious experts. And I think in a, in a little bit of a sarcastic tone, Jesus looks at them and says, good job, guys. Congratulations. You are an expert at sidestepping my laws. And that's the, the command here. And if we read in verse, verse 13, like that's, the, that's the statement that Jesus gives them. 
Jesus says, you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And the the example that he uses for them is that of an Old Testament principle called a Corban. And so as we read verse 11, let's, let's just read this together. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give God what I would have given to you. I'll be honest, when I read verse 11, like, that sounds pretty spiritual, right? Like, oh, okay, sorry, mom and dad, like, I just made this commitment to God, my bad, like, I told him I was going to give him everything, and I I can't help you, good luck. Like, and it sounds spiritual, but the reality is they're doing this because they don't want to care for their parents. They're doing this because they don't want to care for for their needy parents and their needy family, and they see the need, and they're like, I don't want to deal with that. Okay, God, I'm going to give it to you instead. Sorry, mom and dad. And like, it's, it's not spiritual at all. It's one of the traditions they've used to try to sidestep what God wants them to do, what God has called them to do. And so Jesus, he goes and he's kind of picking on their traditions and saying, hey, these are, these are silly. These, these aren't what we need to be clinging to. And here's the thing. Jesus's issue isn't with tradition per se. Jesus's issue, he takes issue with traditions when they supersede God. Like, there's some traditions that have been passed down through church history that are really good. We take communion every week. It's a tradition that's been passed down for, from Jesus, right? It's a great tradition. Reading the Word of God together. That's a tradition that's really good. Having a time of confession that we're going to do in a little while. Really good tradition that has been passed down. The problem is, when our traditions begin to supersede God, that's, that's, that's the issue. And that's what Jesus takes issue with here, is there's these traditions that the Pharisees are clinging to. They're putting them above following God and doing what God wants them to do. And so Jesus first addresses the outward workings, and now he gets to the heart. He gets gets to the inward workings. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus called the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand It's not what goes into the body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Verse 14 is a really significant moment because most of the time in Mark's gospel, when Jesus goes on to explain a teaching that he teaches, it's usually just to the disciples. Because we read through this, like the disciples are privileged and privy to much of this discussion. Only two times in Mark's gospel does Jesus explain a parable like this to the crowds. Here and in, in chapter 8, we see this take place. And so Jesus explains this to the people. They're privileged to this information. And the two commands, the two statements that Jesus makes in this past, verse 14 are really important. All of you listen and try to understand. It's pretty simple. But let's just look at the, the flip of this. Is when we fail to listen and we don't try to understand, we almost always end up with the wrong conclusions. It's, it's simple, but the reality is that's the truth. This is what has happened with the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is trying to remind them of. He's trying to get them to, to remember. He's trying to get them to think. He's trying to get them to understand what is right. Trying to come to the correct conclusions. They've, they've missed the point. And so in verse 15, Jesus gives us this beautiful statement when he says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Jesus is showing that life transformation is from the inside out. It starts in the heart and it moves its way out. And so does when things go bad. It starts starts in the heart. So Jesus, he's looking at these Pharisees, and I almost think he's saying, like, I don't care about hand-washing. 
Because it's not unclean hands that make an unclean heart. It's unclean hearts that make everything else unclean. And so Jesus is reminding them of that. He's telling them this. And if we flip to verse 19, Jesus continues. So he pulls his disciples in. Again, he starts speaking to them. He tells them, explains a little bit more to them. And here's what he says. Verse 19 through 21, part of 21. He says, food doesn't go into your heart. It only passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer. By, this, he, by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added... It's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart. Jesus has mentioned the heart a couple of different times. And I think this is a really significant word for us to understand. It's one that we've got to make sure that we get. It's one we've got to make sure that we, we grasp. There is a Greek word in the Bible for, or there's a Greek word for the, the, the human heart, for the organ that pumps blood. This isn't it. All right? So when we read this word, when we read heart in the New Testament, it's, not, it's never the literal like pumping blood through your body. But it's this idea of this inner self, the, the very core, the very essence of who you are. This is what Jesus is getting at. He, Jesus later says, and I think it's in Matthew, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs talks about this, above all else, guard your heart. And he's not talking about, hey, make sure you put on a chest plate and keep like, things from hitting your heart. No, he's talking about the very essence of who you are. Guard that. Hold that. It's the inner person. It's, it's the emotional seat of everything. Your heart is actually who you are. And so in this text, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter for the Pharisees. Pun intended, right? All right, so here's the thing. Is Jesus doesn't just want your arbitrary action. He wants your allegiant heart. Jesus doesn't just want you to be able to go and wash your hands and wash your kettles and wash your food. He doesn't just want these actions that you do. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want us to show up on the weekend, take communion, and have these times of singing and, and our hearts be far from him. That's not what he wants. He loves those things, sure. But if our hearts are not aligned with him, if our hearts are not allegiant to him, that's not what he wants. Actually, in Hosea 6.6, 6, Hosea prophesies this word from God. He says, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Sacrifices are good. They're commanded. Burnt offerings, good things. But the point of those is a heart that is loyal to God. That's why we're doing this. So this is what God wants. He wants our hearts to be aligned with him. He doesn't just want these actions. He wants our hearts and that's what he's getting at here. If you guys ever had one of those moments, a where did that come from moment? Maybe, maybe it's yourself. I remember one time I got cut off in traffic and I just started yelling at this car. And I just remember thinking to myself, where did that come from? Ever had one of those moments? Maybe it's with a friend. And you've been with this person for a while. Maybe it's a partner or you've been on a date. And, and like they just have this moment that seems so out of character of them. And you're just like, where did that come from? You know what Jesus says? <laughs> Their heart. Where did that rage, that anger, about that car that cut me off, where did that come from? My heart. And so Jesus is using this and he's telling us this and he continues on. He, he sets this up in verses 20 through 23. Jesus finishes. He says, it's what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things vile, all these vile things come from within. They are what defiles you. I don't think it's a coincidence that evil thoughts is mentioned first. As we begin to, to read through this in, in Greek writing, like what we see is in the Greek, this was actually the heading of this passage. And so he sets it all up by like Jesus says evil thoughts. And then he goes all of these different vices that people struggle with. He goes with all of these actions that people do, but it's all set up with evil thoughts. And here's what I think is true of us. As go our thoughts, so go our actions. This is what Jesus is saying. It's like as our thoughts begin to go, so do our actions. And so here's what I think evil thoughts should do for us. I think evil thoughts should be a check engine light or a warning light for us. So have one of these moments where you have some evil thoughts popping up. Don't just ignore it. I don't know if you guys remember the story I told you about the check engine light of my car that I put black tape over so that I didn't have to see it anymore. Worked well until the car died. <laughs> That's not what I want us to do with our evil thoughts. We're not just going to throw some tape over and be like, oh, it's probably fine. We got to deal with it. We got to address it. We got we to get to the bottom of it because it is out of those evil thoughts that Jesus says all these vile things come. And one of the things we have to do in order to, to examine ourselves is we got to be quiet. We got to take some time and, and assess and look at ourselves. And I, one of, it might be one of the reasons why we don't like being quiet because it reveals to us something maybe we don't want to see about ourselves. we got to turn off our phones, turn the TV off, and just have some time to deal with your thoughts. See what you're thinking. See what evil things are popping up. See, take a real assessment of yourself. See what's happening. Because it's these evil thoughts that bring, brings about everything else that begins to happen here. So don't cover it up. Confess it. Address it. Deal with it. Whatever these evil thoughts may be. Because Jesus says it's our, it's our heart that everything else flows from. So this should be an indication to us that something is going wrong, that something is off, something is not working correctly, something under the hood of our heart is going wrong. A few years ago, uh, somebody, um, I'm not going to name any names, but somebody was driving our car, and uh, they hit a curb. And, and when they did, it, it popped the tire. And, and so we pulled a pulled over to the side of the road and changed the tire and like put on the spare and I went and, and I went and got a new tire. The problem was the, the problem wasn't fixed because the steering wheel that's supposed to be like this when you're driving straight was turned like this. <laughs> Clearly something was wrong. Okay? And so but we, we changed the tire and then like I ended up having the, we changed the hub, we changed the shock and we changed the, the tire rod. Steering wheel was straight until you let go of it, and then the car would veer off to the, the wrong way. What did it need? It had been replaced. The tire had been replaced. It had been fixed. It needed to be, needed to be realigned. So I took it to a garage and, and got the car realigned and got the alignment fixed. If you haven't done that, like you should. It's a good thing to do. It keeps your tires from wearing out, apparently. They wear correctly. But like, the car was realigned now, and it finally started driving the way that it was supposed to. But it wasn't until that realignment happened that the thing started to work like it was meant to. And I think for us, this is what this passage is, is requiring of us, is to undergo a little bit of realignment, is, is to, be, to be put right. 
to, to be put back on the right direction, the right path that we are meant to go. Because the reality is our sinful nature, it tends to, to pull us away from doing what is right. It begins to distract us and move us away from what God wants from us. And so when we show up on the weekends, this is a chance to be realigned. This is a chance to, to be fixed, to be put back on the right track, to, to fix our eyes on the kingdom, to fix our eyes on what Jesus wants us to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father.